When I first heard about the concept of allyship, I was deeply involved in the world of social justice. The idea that privileged people should follow the leadership of the oppressed in the fight for liberation seemed quite reasonable to me. Over time, however, I realized that the concept was being used to disguise and excuse vengeance, hostility, and resentment. On today's episode, we discuss where things went wrong and whether there's a more useful way to conceptualize political action that benefits others. Later in the episode, we will discuss whether Canada exploits international students, how economic forces may finally be converging to benefit low-wage workers, and why we can't fix the overdose epidemic without addressing the housing crisis. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. And this is Hot Take Think Tank. So, uh, last week I published an essay called Why I Don't Believe in Allyship. And uh, to start us off, Liam, I was wondering if you have any memories of me when I was quite deep in the social justice sauce. Yes, I, I did. <laughs> I did remember one. Uh, it was, I think, around the holidays. And we, I, it was a long time ago. I was probably still in high school. And it was, uh, we were playing Scrabble, you and me and a friend of yours. Which seems mm-hmm. innocuous enough. You know, I think at that point I was like a little on edge uh, around you, worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, but Scrabble seemed safe. But then your friend played the word cis, which mm-hmm. I had not heard before. <laughs> and when I was like, is that a word? You looked at me with such like daggers in your eyes <laughs> and such just like, like, like you could you couldn't even believe that I'd ask such a thing. <laughs> and oh I don't gosh. I don't think you explained to me what cis meant. But you were like, it's definitely a word. You cannot question that word. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, okay, never mind. Uh good to go. Just knowing wow. that I'd stepped on some some landmine I had no idea was there. I thought we were just playing a word game, but <gasps> some words you gotta be real careful around. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. The best part of that is that like, I didn't explain anything to you. I was just like, how dare you not already know this thing? It's, <laughs> I got the gist that it was like somehow a political something, but yeah, no, I, I did not. I think I'm pretty sure I looked it up later because I was uh, afraid, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly I, I didn't know something that it was very wrong for me not to know. So uh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> Well, thank goodness I did not educate you at all. Um. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, really, I mean... You know, I was just trying to be an ally at that point. You know, it's not on, you know, people of transgender people to explain what being cis is to cis people, is it? Exactly. <laughs> it's not their job to educate you. Clap, clap, clap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, allyship. Um, so... That's what was so strange about it is that, you know, it, it sounded good in theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of leveling the playing field, creating equality, right? The idea that like some people had been so downtrodden and so ignored that like the only way to like equalize things was to kind of hand power over to them. Right. Um, but I don't know. In my experience, it really just gave people with, you know, sufficiently oppressed identities permission to treat everyone else however they wanted to. And right. um, 
I have been on both ends of that, right? In terms of race, I nodded along to all sorts of degrading generalizations about white people mm. uh, in terms of gender. give gender. examples? What, what, oh, what sort of thing would you nod to? Well, I mean, just like the idea that white people are like naturally more violent, right? Colonizers, wow. right. blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like that, racist things. Yes. <laughs> well, can you really be racist against the dominant group? Like, yeah, there's there's a whole <laughs> right. idea that that you can't be racist towards white people because white people right, and uh, some people are willing to like power. push the limits of that question, aren't they? <laughs> oh yes, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, the type of stuff people say, it's hard to argue that they're not being racist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but the idea is basically that interpersonal racism. I guess doesn't matter or like isn't comparable right, to, right. to structural racism. Sort of, right. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, right. So to be a good ally, though, you'd just be like, "Yeah, cool. I'm probably predisposed yes. to race to violence or whatever." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have violence in my heart. Yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> but then on the other hand, you know, when it came to gender or sexuality, I got to dish out the degrading comments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was super dysfunctional. Um, it sort of acted as though, or it assumed that like indiv- individual penance could somehow like uh, fix structural sins, you know, rather mm. than policy changes, for example. Um, there was just a real focus on like individuals' behaviors and sort of mm-hmm. what you would allow people to say to you seem like a big measure of it right or or what you would do when you were told to do it right without kind of being like hang on a second do i actually agree with doing this um, because right. to sort of like yeah. prove yourself as a good ally yeah yeah because a lot of yeah. being quiet and following orders sort of things yeah yeah for sure because yeah. it's it's about deference right it's like mm. i i defer to this person you know um so that's weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You, I, th- I think you used the word like equalize earlier, but it, it does mm. feel a lot less like like the goal isn't like uh, uh, an immediate equality. It's like a historical Mm-mm. equality by like making up for the past or like yeah. the perceived past or whatever. Right. That it's like, it, you know, we don't get to equality by all being equal. We get to equality by flipping it on its head and making yeah. me the you know oppressed person now i'm get to be the the mean ruler colonialist or whatever exactly like yeah white people need a taste of their own medicine uh, mm-hmm. yeah men need a taste of their own medicine and so on yeah for sure right. it's vengeance that's the word for that right, right. what you're describing yeah. is vengeance right um, but also not even like necessarily a personal vengeance mm-hmm. like a like a vengeance for your whole group and how your whole group has been treated historically Right. Like it's not it doesn't always have to be I was, you know, oppressed, you know, this time in this way. Right. I I don't get the impression that that was part of the conversation. It was more like about the identity. Right. An oppressed identity. Exactly. Well, everyone's sort of a representative of a group. Right. Like, yeah, because like did I personally participate in slavery? Not to my memory. Um, But yeah. and, And I mean, talk about the stuff that gets said about white people. Like I've seen posts online saying like, you know, talking about um, like intergenerational trauma and Mm -hmm. literally saying that like white people's ancestors uh, have not experienced war 
starvation, you know, <laughs> all these. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, these things that everyone experienced mm-hmm. until very recently. Exactly, uh, yeah, very like common. pretty yeah. universal um, experiences. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so that's the level that it's at, right, is that, like, that that white people, like, have no history of bad things happening to them <laughs> at the most extreme. That's right. That's what, what uh, some people think. So, um, yeah, that's a whole, uh, load of garbage. And, um, <laughs> so you've, so you've come around to, to change your mind about these things. It sounds like <laughs> I have, I have, I just, I think that anything that, you know, discourages people from thinking for themselves from like, reaching Mm. their own conclusions, you know, anything that asks you to disrespect yourself or disrespect other people, um, is probably misguided, especially if we're trying to like build a mass movement, uh, to, you know, fight for actual material equality, for example. Totally. I thought that was a a very, uh, I I loved this essay that you wrote on this topic. And I, I thought it was a really good point. Just the idea that like, um, all this stuff that we've described so far about allyship, it, it sucks to, you know, exist in that environment. And it also looks unappealing from the outside. Exactly. Which makes it very hard to get people to sign up for it. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, like, I guess when you're in it, maybe it makes sense. But from the outside, it just looks like, oh, so I just sign up to like be abused by people. <laughs> like I just sign up to have to nod mm. along to things I don't agree with and mm-hmm. um, just you know, have to put up with, uh, being mistreated, uh, mm-hmm. which not many people, it's hard. That's a hard sell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess you have to convince someone that it's like morally wrong to do anything else. But, uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just like, uh, are not going to listen to your moral arguments if, if that's what they're trying to sign you up for. No, absolutely. Like, yeah, the the left is is never going to win anything if that's how we treat people, right? Like, because yeah, who in their right minds? Like, you ha- there has to be something a little wrong with you, whether it's like you have low self esteem or you're depressed. Like, something has to be going on for you to sign up to be treated that way. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, or, or maybe, maybe can... I, I could see also like just a, a longing for like a community to be a part of. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have a hard time fitting in. Uh, in all sorts of situations and finding somewhere I think I think there's an appeal to a place that has very clear rules about what it takes to be a member right. I feel like That's a lot of things true. it's like hard to you know how, how do I really know if I'm fitting in with this group or that group I feel like one thing social justice has going for it is it's like <laughs> here is the book of <laughs> rules follow all of these and you are accepted uh, exactly and I, yeah. I don't know if that, that's true if it totally lives up to that uh principle i don't get the impression it does but um it's i could see the appeal of that part of it just like the uh you know rule following part of people's brains uh can be very drawn into things that have clear rules it's true and you know it is harder for me now to like remember you know the allure of it because i've become you know disillusioned but yeah no i think a lot of people do come in initially because they do feel empowered by something within Mm. that within that subculture right like there's some part of themselves that maybe at some point they felt embarrassment about or whatever that in social justice land you know can be a source of like pride and strength so i do think you know people do yeah get roped in for various reasons but it's just such a health an unhealthy dynamic that it's like 
yeah, it looks yeah. bizarre from the outside as it, as it should. Um, and yeah, so in the article, what I recommend instead of allyship is solidarity. Um, mm-hmm. Solidarity requires us to think for ourselves, uh, to treat one another as equals. Um, and yeah, it calls for honesty and integrity. And it acknowledges that we do our best work in the context of mutual respect. Um, and it's kind of old school these days, right? Um, it's totally. much more related to the civil rights movement than the black nationalist movement that supplanted it. Um, you know, the idea that we should not judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, as MLK said, famous, mm-hmm. uh, I don't see color MLK. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel um, like in yeah. this, in, in that subculture, you were a part of that stuff. Would people call that like explicitly racist, like not seeing color? Yes. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. The if if a white person says like, oh, I I don't see race, you know, I don't see color, I just get to know everyone. That that would be uh, racist for sure, because right. yeah, you're not acknowledging the 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 fullness of who someone is, I suppose. Um, right. Yeah. Which <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like there's a distinction to be made there, right? Where it's like the idea that you can approach someone on a human to human level and to get to know them and to not make assumptions about them before talking to them, that seems Mm -hmm. just good. And I also think you can have a curiosity about that person's family and ancestry and lineage. Mm. If, if you end up talking about that, um, I, I just don't see a contradiction there, right? That you can, you can have like respectful curiosity about someone's life and culture and mm. also allow you allow them to represent themselves to you, right? Instead of deciding right. ahead of time who they are. Yeah, totally. I feel like the the idea of solidarity just has like a, a much bigger appeal to sort of everyone. Where whereas like allyship, you're signing up to like be moved to the bottom of the hierarchy. Solidarity, it's more of like the goal is actually equality, and um, just the way that. You know, the, the people who, uh, who feel like they already have a good lot in life, I think, can still sign on to that idea because it's it can be pitched more as like a let's bring everyone up instead of like a let's mm-hmm. flip it around and I have to take a huge hit uh, and live worse than I did before. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it, it does feel, I don't know, I feel like it's pretty dispersed throughout society that it's like not, a, not an acceptable uh, like moral statement to be like, my type of human is better than your type of human. Like, I think, I think the sort of universal human rights is, uh, you know, at least in our part of the world, pretty, pretty widely accepted and, and hard to argue against. So Mm -hmm. it it does seem like a a much more viable, like mass movement, uh, system solidarity and instead of allyship. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, uh, and there was actually a writer uh, by the name of Harold Omnifuture, which, great name, by the way, Harold, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a response to this piece, um, which was sort of in the form of a free association list. Mm-hmm. Um, is very interesting, and I'll link it in the show notes so listeners can check it out for themselves. Mm. Um, and I appreci- appreciated particularly how Harold talked about how the online social justice world seems like a way for middle and upper class people to launder their white guilt 
Um, and <laughs> I would add to that, you know, without having to meaningfully engage in material politics, right? Right. Um, calling yourself a settler in your bio, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, sort of these these um, gestures that are empty, uh, right. but can, you know, kind of give you the um, the glow of someone who cares, you know, um, yeah. within within the leftist subculture anyway. Yeah, right. But there was uh, one criticism directed at me uh, mm -hmm. in the response, which I would love to respond to. Um, Harold writes, uh, that the, uh, that essentially the difference between allyship and solidarity is a semantic argument. Right. Um, and he says, uh, the reliance on labels portends that maybe not much has changed in the way that Gray thinks. Just hmm. do the thing. Let the historians give it a name. So. Interesting. So the, the <laughs> argument is sort of that, um, Behavior-wise, solidarity and allyship uh, look the same, but yes. it's just like in the '60s we called it solidarity, and in the 2020s we call it allyship. That's sort of the the critique. It, it seems to be that right that like the, yeah the only difference yeah the only difference is is a word rather than like a deeper you know material meaning. I, right. I think that's what what it's getting at here, and I'm kind of of two minds on this. Mm. Like on the one hand, I'm like. I like the call to political action, right? Do, right? Just do the thing. Let historians give it a name. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm slightly sympathetic to him calling this a semantic argument because my writing is often discussing rhetoric and vocabulary. I talk and write about cool. ideas and ideology. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be the first person to concede that that has limited political value. Um, yep. But I, I do think that engaging with this um, can reach people who have felt pushed out by the rhetoric of the left. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I can tell them that they should stick around, that there's still a place for them. Um, so, you know, there might be a tiny bit of political influence there, but I don't want to overstate it. Um, right. So, yes, the word is or the essay is about words and concepts. However, I really mm -hmm. do think that there is a real life material difference between people acting in allyship versus people acting in solidarity. And I'll give give an example mm -hmm. here. When I was involved in the social justice world as an ally, I helped co-facilitate anti-oppression trainings which are probably more commonly called diversity trainings, right? So the right. goal was to draw the different, uh, draw attention to the different life circumstances of the people in the room and to show that not everyone started out with equal advantage, right? Um, mm. Really teaching the concept of privilege as an unearned advantage. Um, and the workshops would have kind of various exercises that were designed to drive these concepts home. Mm -hmm. Um and there's the question, do they work, right? Right. <laughs> um, diversity, the, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, industry is now a $9 billion industry uh, right. annually. Um, so in that and, way, it works. It works to make money. It's sellable. That's something. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can make money doing it. I never did, of course. Hmm. I've always been a poor business person. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so there's this article by Jesse Single for the New York Times at the beginning of the mm. year that was called What If Diversity Training is Doing More Harm Than Good? Um, mm. And I'll, I'll quote from that, which uh, it says, 
Over the years, social scientists who have conducted careful reviews of the evidence base for diversity training have frequently come to discouraging conclusions. And he goes on to say that even though diversity trainings have been around since at least the 1960s, they're mm -hmm. very rarely subject to rigorous study. Um, but when they are, the diversity trainings appear to have little to no positive long-term effects. So they right. simply do not accomplish what they hope to accomplish. Um, and right. the New York Times article even gets into why these trainings might actually worsen the DEI mm. climates of organizations. So that's the type of thing that I was doing as an ally, right? When allyship was right. the concept at the front of mind for me. Totally. And, and it, I could, I can't help but feel like the researchers, uh, in some sense are being bad allies by doing <laughs> this research, right? That oh, it's for like, sure. You know, the, the oppressed people conducting these seminars or whatever, um, should be deferred to right and if they say it works then it should then it works and you should uh that should be the end of it right but uh absolutely yeah yeah being, absolutely. being bad allies who are like i'm gonna second guess you uh yeah wanting to, evidence is <laughs> bad allyship uh asking questions bad allyship uh right yeah having doubts bad allyship for sure hmm. um so what about solidarity what does solidarity look like in a real life concept well, uh, a good example is union organizing, right? Uh, unions mm. often act in solidarity with other organizations and groups, and that includes financially. Um, there's also solidarity within unions, right? And a good example is yeah. when current union members refuse to accept a contract that would protect their pensions, but would strip all future employees of pensions. And that's mm. like a very common occurrence where you will have workers acting in solidarity with future workers they haven't even met yet. Right. So not only do union workers have smaller racial and gender wage gaps than non-union workers, but mm -hmm. there was a 2020 research paper in the American Journal of Political Science called Labor Unions and White Racial Politics. And this paper found that unions have an anti-racist side effect. White union hmm. members feel less racial resentment against blacks than their non-union counterparts. And um, there's an article on Salon.com called Why Labor Unions Make People Less Racist by Matthew Rosa. Hmm. Um, and yeah, basically the paper has uh, shown the reduced racial resentment within union workers um, and there's a couple reasons for this, right? There's a need to recruit workers of color in order to achieve majority memberships in racially diversifying right. labor sectors. Um, and so they have to have ideological and strategic incentives to mitigate racial resentment among the work and file in pursuit of their organizational goals, right? Mm. And growth. Um, so basically these organizations rely on interracial solidarity to succeed. It's baked right into their structure. So yeah. when Harold says that the difference between allyship and solidarity is semantic, this is what I would say, right? That these words refer to concepts that really can affect what sort of political action people right. choose to engage in. Right. It's, it feels like maybe the, the left did like swap out one word for the other. But alongside that swap out, what was actually being done changed, you know, alongside it. Yes, uh, absolutely. So it, like it, it did take that place in the movement, but it's not not the, sort of the same 
uh, actual thing happening. Yeah, and we have nine billion dollars worth of you know work <laughs> being done in the direction of something that has very little evidence to support it. Um, yeah, and you know I I think the left, uh, the social justice left. I, I hope this is changing, but has been kind of skeptical or dismissive of union organizing at certain points right? Um, because they're more class focused and uh, right. less focused on diversity, equity, and right, inclusion. Right, right. It would be hard to, I, I bet you couldn't find a union where uh, uh, people from oppressed groups get more pay than people from not oppressed groups. That would right, be, which, yeah, which hard might sell. be what the social justice thing uh, <laughs> would, would suggest is the right move. But uh, yeah, when yeah. you're actually in the room discussing your contract, probably not so much. The other, exactly. I, I, we're, we should probably move on to the next article. But one uh, last thing that uh, I find really interesting about the contrasting those two things is that um, one approach sort of foregrounds racial differences mm-hmm. and the other one does not. And then the one that seems to have better outcomes is the one that doesn't focus like that. The, you know, union organizing isn't like uh, an explicitly racial uh, activity. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the fact that that's the one that uh, leads to better outcomes is just interesting. Right. It's it, it's like a problem that when you try and deal with it head on, you fail. But when you deal with it tangentially, uh, that might work better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think in in sometimes uh, the findings in research are counterintuitive, but I think there's mm-hmm. something intuitive about the idea that, you know, if you have a common goal with people that are different from you, you don't know each other very well, but, you know, my future relies on working with you and your future relies on working with me. It makes sense that that's an, yeah. a, an environment in which we learn a bit more about each other, right? Like it's much easier to hold stereotypes about groups if you've never met anyone like that before, right? Totally. Or, so ne- or I, like yeah. never been on the same team. Right, right? exactly, like that, you know, exactly. W- you and me are going to work together on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that basically was the political impetus behind the essay, right? To really encourage people to engage in meaningful political organizing that really has material benefits for marginalized people and doesn't just do lip service. Totally. Yeah, great article. Very, very good. (laughs) Thank you. Well, let's move on next to something that uh, you did not write. Uh, It's an article (laughs) titled, Canada's Open Secret. International students are here to be exploited. Uh, written by Kunal Chandhari and published in The Breach. Uh, The article is about the state of international students coming to Canada for education at colleges and universities. Uh, They pay about five times the tuition fees, uh, which provides an essential chunk of financing for the post-secondary institutions. And they are also limited to 20 hours of work while they're here, uh, which leads some to participate in the informal economy where maltreatment is common. The article does not pull any punches about its thesis, saying that Canada, quote, uses international students to prop up its fledgling labor market and has created, in effect, an indentured class of student laborers, a substratum of the Canadian workforce forced to labor in service of the Canadian economy while being openly reviled by much of the public. Kier, what do you think about this article? (laughs) Well, um, although there's some fiery language, like what you just said, um, (laughs) that feels a bit over the top, um, 
like I, I'm not sure that, you know, the majority of Canadians feel a revulsion towards international <laughs> students. Uh-huh. Um, I think that the labor issues are really legitimate and concerning, right? The, the hmm. fact that there's a 20 minute, 20 minute, 20 hour, uh, cap on how much these students can work. Like there's no way that they mm-hmm. can, you know, be making enough to, um, feed themselves and clothe themselves and house themselves unless, you know, they're coming with a lot of money. And, yeah. uh, I guess they only have to prove to the government that they have $10,000 and given, um, mm-hmm. the cost of living here, like that, yeah. that'll last you like three months if you're lucky. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and when we have rules like that, which I guess, um, the federal government, temporarily removed the 20 hour limitation last November, but it's going right. to be returning soon at the end of the year. Um, yeah. it is a real concern that students are going to be forced into the, you know, secondary labor market or the, um, under yeah. the table work, right? Because totally. it is true that those people are more likely to get ripped off to not get paid at all. They get paid under minimum wage, you know, if they get injured, like there's all sorts of, um, obstacles for them, uh, to get help. And, and basically they're just really, really vulnerable at that point to mistreatment. Oh, yeah, totally. The, like they call it the informal economy, right? The under the table pay in cash sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's basically the part of the economy where there are no regulations, right? Cause that's the whole idea is that you're, you're being paid secretly for your work. Um, and I don't know, especially here in Canada, the idea of working in a context without any regulation uh, seems very worrying for a lot of reasons, right? And being docked pay, forced to work unreasonable hours, forced to work in dangerous conditions, right? We have uh, a lot of a lot of uh, safety nets in regulation that don't exist uh, if you're working for money under the table. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think putting students in that position is really awful. And then, you know, the article starts off with this food bank that has like has no international right. students on a sign outside. Right. And I think that's the revulsion that the, the article is referring to. Right. Is, you know, if you can't right. make enough to eat and you also can't go to the food bank, like what are you supposed to do? Right. Like that's that that's concerning for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I think that that um, I I wish that the the story had gone a bit more into that sign and what happened because the sign says I think um, no international students and then in brackets it says government regulation. Um, but hmm. the article didn't explain like is there a regulation against uh, giving food bank food to international students or was well, that just uh, there? Yeah, I guess know? what I do yeah. know is that food banks often like require identification right right address sort of thing yeah yeah exactly so i could see this is part of why i would like to see food banks nationalized is because then it could be like standardized um what you know who the food bank supplies and and you wouldn't have like all these little organizations with different rules sort of their own little fiefdoms um Mm. so yeah it is possible that like that but like it's uh, if there is a rule, a government rule against <laughs> feeding one group of human beings who are hungry, like... Yeah, and who are, like, let in officially. Like, yeah, it's not, yeah. you know... It, yeah, exactly. Like, that would be absurd. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, invited them to come and they came and now they can't eat. Like, yeah, that's... Yeah. That we should be taking collective responsibility for that, for sure. I thought oh. um, maybe the most 
shocking part of the article to me was that um, there was one funeral home in Ontario that repatriated 33 bodies back to India. Um, And I guess it was kind of implied in the article that these uh, had been suicides. Right. Yeah. Of of students who would come to Canada. Yeah, exactly. uh, And there was also a... um, a young Indian student who was uh, living under a bridge in Toronto recently. Right. Um, who had been found by his classmates and got him into the shelter system. But like this is, you know, <laughs> this is the type of life that certain international students are. This this is the Canadian experience that they're having. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. No, there was a few, definitely a few, a few things in this article that seem, seem very, very bad. The part that I felt a bit, um, I don't know. I guess it's a rhetorical article, right? Trying to make a point and drive it home, but um, it paints like a, this incredibly dire picture of the, uh, you know, what it's like to be an international student in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so the part that threw me a bit is that the program is incredibly popular. Right. Right. It says there's 800,000 international students in 2022. Um, so I, I guess, um, you know, I don't want to hold our country to low standards or anything. I, I, I think that the informal co- economy stuff is quite bad. Um, and if anyone's sort of being misled uh, to get into this program, that also would feel very bad. But um I don't know. I guess it, it just feels like if, if the situation is as dire as this article paints it, then why uh, do so many students sign up for it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If that makes sense. I, I don't know. I wonder if, if um, the situation people are leaving behind uh, could be even worse in some mm-hmm. cases, right? Um, it just, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I know a handful of international students and... Uh, this, I don't know, this article doesn't feel like it explains uh, either their experience or their reasoning for signing up for the program. Yeah, for sure. No, that's that's a fair point, right? Like, um, people are opting into this. You could argue that maybe there are yeah. forces at play that <laughs> um, yeah. are, are putting pressure on them to make that choice. Or And, you know, I think, like, the the idea of, like opportunity available in Canada is like a really old story, right? Like even, um, you know, a hundred years ago, like right before the Chinese head tax came in, um, a lot of, I I think Vancouver was referred to in, in China as a gold mountain and Hmm. literally people in China were told that the pay that the streets were paved with gold in Canada and like everyone in Canada was fabulously wealthy. And, you know, if you could get there, you'd be just fine. Of course, when these people got here, a lot of them were sent to be dynamite runners (laughs) for the railroad. I think Um, those people largely were explicitly lied to about what they, you know, how they'd be received. uh, Yeah. So that's obviously like an extreme (laughs) case and it's from the past, but you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, these that if recruiters are are just, you know really telling um, 
not exactly tall tales, but exaggerating the type of opportunity or the likelihood of success, right? Because um, the article does talk about how roughly 70% of international students Mm -hmm. um, did not make a life in Canada after their study period concluded. And they went back to their home countries with uh, Canadian-sized debt. Um, yeah, I didn't know so, what to make yeah. of that statistic, to be honest. Um, well, I would say I found it really surprising that 70% okay, right. of international students, yeah, don't stay. That That yeah. is not what my impression was, right? I thought international students mm. came here to get an education and then to work here, most likely, right? Or perhaps work in another English-speaking country. And that's part of, like, why someone would be able, be willing to take on the massive amounts of debt that an international mm-hmm. student takes on to come here, right? Yeah, yeah, it could be. I, I guess I, I don't really know the job prospects in the various home countries with a Canadian degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that we do have like some universities and whatnot that are, you know, on the on the short list of best universities in the world. Uh, so I imagine you could you could be fairly well paid in most countries with a degree from one of those. But I don't know, you know, how many are going to, you know, University of Toronto versus, uh, you know, a technical college or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know. And and I don't know. Thirty percent do successfully. Uh, you know, leave their country behind and move to Canada. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a fair chunk. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it is. I think it really does depend like what are people being told? What are their expectations? Right. Yeah. Um, I I do feel like if it was truly like a bad decision, um, like it's not a, a new program, right? Where people are feeling it out. I feel like, it's existed for a long time and, and must have something of a good reputation if it uh, has so many people coming to do it. I don't know, though. You could also have people with, like, really limited options, right? And and this is the one they choose, but... Yeah, um, no, it's, it's true. And, it, it and gets I think that. the article, yeah, mm. kind of refers to that at the end, right? It says, like, you know, if, you know, Canada develops a reputation for really mistreating totally. international students, they will stop coming here. So I guess yeah. the proof will be in the pudding, right, over time. Totally. Are we going to lose yeah, out I think on that, this I think that's not? why I, I rubbed up against, like, the very harsh language so much sort of just that it feels like a like if it was uh, truly like turning people into indentured laborers uh the the problem would in time resolve itself in that people wouldn't sign up for it anymore um it doesn't feel like it's being forced on people and it it gets at that very uncomfortable part of (laughs) i don't know the, the world's development i think where where there are people in very bad situations and it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to get into this, but just <laughs> the idea that, um, I don't know, someone who's like, um, it, it feels uncomfortable to offer someone something that's better than what they have, but worse than what they deserve. Yeah, no, Does I that feel that, sense? right? Right, Is right. It, if it's like you can make more here under the table than you can make back home, right? Right, it feels somehow like... like but um, you're still making less than Canadian citizens, for example, right? Yeah, like, it, it feels yeah. very uncomfortable, but it also feels sort of like it would take away their autonomy 
And like that the idea of like, oh, well, you know, we, we can't provide a Canadian salary job, so we just shouldn't invite them at all. Mm-hmm. Feels like, you know, taking away an option. And if it's an option that they would have chosen, uh, that feels icky in a different way. Yeah, but at the same time, like, it's arbitrary that they can't work more than 20 hours a week. They just took the calf off for a year, right? So if they can do that, they can keep it off. And we have a labor shortage, right? So I think, like, that's that's how I would push back a little bit is it's like, well, yeah, like, they might still do it if it's bad, but that doesn't mean we can't make it better. And we could, like, I think our economy will benefit from that because we literally have a labor shortage. Yeah. (laughs) So why are we letting them work more? (laughs) It's like, I guess I I just wish, (laughs) I think that you could write an article about the same issues and say, like, it would be better for Canada and for international students Mm -hmm. if we made these changes, right? If we expanded the number of hours you can work and you know, ease the path to citizenship for foreign students, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That could have been, you know, you could frame the same information in, in that way. And it would be like a cool, let's make the world better article instead of like a, how do we live with ourselves <laughs> kind of article. It's true. It's true. It has it's, sort uh, of, um, yeah, a tone of um, real like cynicism and, um yeah, like it's it's painting a very, very dismal picture, which probably doesn't represent all international students, um, but it might yeah. represent like the worst off of the international students. And totally. um, yeah, we should care about them. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm with you. <laughs> Next up, we have an article from The Economist entitled Welcome to a Golden Age for Workers. It lays out three very broad trends that it predicts will result in better pay for workers, particularly at the lower end of the income distribution. First is demographics. As populations age and the working class population gets proportionally smaller, the demand for workers will increase and the supply decrease. Second is government policy. Many governments are now running larger deficits and spending lavishly on job creation programs, again increasing competition among businesses for workers. And third is AI, which has the potential to decrease the skill gap between lower and higher skilled workers. The thrust of the article is that while the 2010s generally sucked for workers, the 2020s are shaping up much better. Kier, I'm curious what you thought of this article. Yeah, um, I felt really hopeful after reading it. Uh, I feel like there's been a lot of pretty doomerish predictions about AI replacing workers and particularly replacing mm-hmm. low wage workers. Um, so this was strangely refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of felt so too. I think, I think even from a different angle, I I think just from like the, the years that I became an adult during the idea that like work was moving overseas has been like my whole adult life. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) Right. So the idea, right. Reading that, um, like China's working age population has peaked and is now falling, uh, was just remarkable the idea like oh wait the uh offshoring isn't like a, a never-ending cycle where all of the jobs will be gone uh it's like that that was a trend and the trend now seems to be reversing yeah that's super interesting like i i really didn't think that you know uh, <laughs> those jobs were coming back anytime soon and, and i don't think we've seen that yet there's like particular challenges like mm-hmm. um 
China has a lot more engineers. I can't remember the name, the type of engineer it is, but right. like able to work on like sort of microscopic technology. Like mm-hmm. um, we simply like don't have uh, those types of engineers here in nearly the same numbers. Totally. But it sounds like, yeah, there's like a change in tide that's that's on the horizon here. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It, it, the whole article does stay pretty much at like the very broad level. Um, it doesn't get into very many specifics about like specific industries or, you know, specific, even specific countries for most of it. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool to see like the, the broad trends laid out, sort of how, how a financial person might, uh, you know, look at the prospects of all the low wage workers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, and see a surprising amount of positivity. Mm-hmm. Um, especially I feel like when sort of the, the, I mean, I guess I, I thought it was interesting. Um, the idea that these days, like it's very politically important, uh, to like bolster your uh, low wage worker claims. Um, mm-hmm. that feels like something almost out of, uh, like the Occupy Wall Street movement, you know, mm-hmm. where it like it really drew, drew attention to income inequality and to, to wage gaps and that sort of thing. And now it feels like it, it's pretty mainstream, the idea that, like, uh, society, you know, you should play not just to rich people, but also to, uh, you know, the, the worse off. And, mm-hmm. you know, you should, you know, you will talk very often about uh, material uh, policies, right? And it, it does seem like uh, those have become in vogue more than they have been for a long time. The idea of spending, like, yeah. huge sums of government money uh on getting jobs for for poor people yeah absolutely um it's been cool i've i've seen some articles over the last maybe year or so Mm -hmm. um and the headline will be something like uh restaurant solves worker shortage and then you read the article and it's Mm -hmm. like they decided to pay a living wage and they decided to provide health benefits uh, the the restaurant did and oh look they don't have any turnover anymore. They don't have work right, or shortage totally. anymore. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, they have people applying for the work that they have. <laughs> exactly. Like the idea that like, yeah, because there's a later labor shortage, workers can leave, right? That gives them so much power totally. to like go to someone that will provide them with a higher wage and benefits. And it really, it yeah. creates like this competition, right? Among employers. Totally. It's like, what can you provide? How can right. you keep your people, right? Because and I if, think you, that's if great. you don't have like an edge to keep workers working for you, then they will will leave and work for someone else who has an edge right yeah totally it's sort of how competition is uh supposed to be helpful (laughs) but hasn't been so much in a while (laughs) yeah yeah for sure i think um i think the author's name is uh cedric johnson who's just written a book for verso um, mm-hmm. I think it might be called After Black Lives Matter, and it's sort of a socialist mm. critique of the um, Black Lives Matter movement. And right. sort of in the at the end of it, like when he's talking about how it's really been sort of glossed over that a lot of the black people who were killed by police in, in these uh, cases that became so famous, a mm. lot of them were working sort of in the... Um, uh, informal economy here we are again right right? like selling cds on the street or selling single cigarettes and Mm. actually that that 
that um, work and also that like precarious class standing as part of what made these people so vulnerable to the violence they experienced Hmm. Um, that that was sort of and I think what it was is that um, the Black Lives Matter movement like was kind of playing into respectability politics a bit right they they wanted to um, honor these people and um, give them dignity Um, but part of what that did was ignore the class element um, right that like, you know, not all black people are equally vulnerable to police violence. Um, Mm. And one thing that the author uh, talks about near the end of the book is um, public works projects, right? Like if you, if you have this class of people that's like totally disenfranchised from work for various reasons, like, you know, um, maybe it's because of a, criminal background right like good luck getting a job with a felony um Mm -hmm. or or for various other reasons um public works projects like there's there's plenty of different things um that could be that these people could be doing that would be for like the the civic good right and there's tons of examples like the whole reason that the u.s has national parks is because Mm. of previous public works projects right and right yeah there's like so many cool things that those projects have done. Like one of them actually was uh, collecting oral history from former slaves. There's like wow. this huge trove of interviews and, and those were done by, again, people working under public works projects. So hmm. yeah, I think there's like, if, you know, if we're open to a, a socialist spin on sort of, <laughs> Um, how to how to bring people out of those informal economies like there's there's a lot of cool cool things we could do totally yeah and it it seems like the the tides are sort of shifting on whether or not that kind of policy is like politically palatable Mm -hmm. uh, in north america right that it's uh uh for a long time you know the idea of any big government projects was sort of uh (laughs) poo-pooed but now mm -hmm. it's uh becoming more popular again yeah Uh, yeah which is interesting. Uh, another kind of f- funny point about it uh, is that there's been a trend toward for uh, labor unions to demand uh, fewer work hours per week. Yeah. Uh, which they point out as sort of like uh, the horror for uh, the companies that are already <laughs> facing the staff shortages. Mm-hmm. And now on top of it, they have to give all of their current staff uh, less work every week, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, you know, for someone like you or or me, <laughs> the idea of like a, a shorter work week, right? That's the sort of thing that is a lot harder to demand when uh, you couldn't go find a job elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if labor markets are are tight and there's more jobs than there are people to work the jobs, uh, suddenly uh, the employers have to give many more concessions. Yeah, absolutely. I know that four d- the four day work week studies have been uh, so hopeful, and uh, yeah, it's that's sort of the to... funny thing is it, it's, it'll be curious to see if uh, if the if companies that you know cut it down to four day work weeks if they end up needing to hire you know proportionally more more people to cover that extra work or if uh, the less burnt out employees will get more done. Yeah, actually, um, the Rogers Sugar Company uh, near Mm. here, I think they're still on strike. They have been on strike um, Mm. recently. And uh, part of it is that the company basically wants like the 24 hour um, 
they, they want people working all all hours of the clock to like oh, okay yeah um, yeah produce sort of the maximum that they could get out of their factories and mm. and the working the workers are pushing back on that because of the types of shifts that they'd they'd end up right. with and yeah I wonder that with the four hour work week right because they seem to say that um, the studies show that that people can get you know five days work of work worth of work done in four um but that yeah. can really m- more be true for like knowledge workers than for like totally yeah you know, it, people assembling cars imagine. or whatever <laughs> yeah totally some jobs are already sort of going at the like at the uh, physical capacity per hour uh mm-hmm. but you might have like less injuries and less disability claims if people were working oh, four totally. hours over five or four yeah. days over five well, and you also <laughs> might be able to attract workers to your factory at all yeah uh, exactly if all the other factories are uh, demanding longer work hours you know oh my that, gosh, might that be would how give you, you an employees. edge for sure yeah. <laughs> you're like we'll pay you totally. the same and you work one less day a week like there you yeah. go free tip totally. for any bosses out there listening <laughs> yeah totally well and and getting to the the difference between um sort of information workers and uh you know labor what would you call blue 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 collar workers Mm -hmm. uh it does get into um yeah an interesting trend is that the the wage premium for uh people with the university education has been shrinking right um and the article goes into the idea that uh so far the studies on ai suggest that uh that might be the direction AI goes, sort of um, letting people with less education or, or you know, fewer labor skills uh, mm-hmm. sort of close that gap easier um, and perform perform the higher wage labor that uh, is currently out of reach because they, you know, didn't have as many years at university uh, mm-hmm. as was, was previously needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also mentioned that like in the societies that are experiencing demographic aging, right, which we certainly Mm -hmm. are in Canada, that like it is like the labor intensive jobs that are going to have the worst shortages, right? And those are often jobs that like have not been as well paid, right? But, Mm -hmm. you know, those, yeah, so that might be a pressure that specifically affects like manual labor jobs, um, totally. Yeah, and yeah. then if on on top of that, the manual laborer can use AI to perform, uh, you know, a job that would have required a degree in the ta- the past, mm-hmm. that puts yet more pressure on the employer to pay more and give more benefits to win over that worker at all. Right? If suddenly they have to compete with, um, uh, you know, I don't know, financial firms or or hospitals mm-hmm. or law firms uh, for that same worker. Uh, previously they just got to to you know compete with the other factories but um if you know uh, an example they give right is the idea that nurses could take on some work that is currently done by doctors um thanks to uh access to you know highly trained ai models that uh help them make good decisions in the Mm -hmm. way that a doctor might but without the full uh the full doctorate degree (laughs) And, right, uh, and, and then, then presumably care workers could take on nursing, totally. uh, nursing roles with assistance yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it also gets at the idea that like um, you could hire based on different skill sets, right? Like the the important, most important thing for a nurse could become the bedside manner, as mm-hmm. opposed to whether or not they have a diploma or a degree, um, which would be very interesting. Sort of a, a, a big shift in. Uh, what qualities are being hired for 
Yeah, uh, for sure. I do feel like the writer did seem a little bit naive on what nurses already do <laughs> because <yeah>. nurses already <laughs> do a lot of like have, have taken on a lot of like doctoring roles and oh, totally. and they are very highly trained. So you wouldn't want someone walking in off the street and uh, no, nursing no, for it. But I think this article is more talking about, yeah, these general trends that right, can result the, in. Yeah, like the, the general uh, idea that AI might augment people with skills that they don't have uh, and sort of, you know, get it to them in a, a faster way than a four-year degree would get it yeah, to them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is uh, very interesting. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it sort of ends with, uh, I don't know, a, a bit about the, the politics of it, that um, that AI might bring in these big shifts that will lead to some job losses um, but that, you know, in the opinion of the, the person who wrote this, uh, it would probably be better to help people who lose their jobs transition, but, uh, not try and sort of hold back the tide of mm-hmm. these changes, uh, which I thought was an interesting, interesting note to end on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, cause that could certainly look like, again, government intervention, right? Like (laughs) retraining. We talk about that because Canada's, you know, uh, economy has been so resource-based for so long, right? So if we're trying to move away from various types of resource extraction, like we really need to support people in retraining into new careers. Yeah, totally. Well, and if Mm -hmm. all all these trends sort of work out the the way they think they will, uh, that seems like it that task might become easier because if if there's more better paid jobs, uh, the idea of transitioning from one job to another gets uh, less intimidating. And if, if AI is there to help you learn the new skills that you lacked before, uh, you know, even easier still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so it was, it was just nice to read an, an article that was like, hey, uh, here's some trends about the world that are going good. Right? <laughs> I feel like we don't come across that too often, do we? <laughs> no, we really don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll see, I guess. But uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll hope for the best. Totally. Well, speaking of something that is not working out for low-wage workers, uh, our mm-hmm. next article um, is from The Walrus, and it's entitled Why the Opioid Crisis is Rooted in the Housing Crisis. And it was written mm-hmm. by Kevin Patterson. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to start off by saying that there were 7,328 opiate overdoses in overdose deaths in Canada in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the opiate epidemic uh, continues to rage and the, the articles written in that context. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There's things I like about this article. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. things I'm not so keen on. Um, yeah. But I think it tells an interesting story for sure. It did. It felt like the article was uh, written and then someone else wrote the title. Uh, it's the yes. impression I got. Like an, an editor looking for clicks might have read it and, and changed the title to something a bit more uh, a bit more sort of clear and targeted than uh, yeah. the, the piece was. I didn't think the piece... I don't, I don't think it even really attempted to say that the opioid crisis was rooted in the housing crisis. Uh, no, I don't sort of think more it just did. playing with the ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The article is like um, pretty narrative and, and reflective, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
it is written by a physician uh, who works on mm-hmm. Vancouver Island. Um, but yeah, I don't think it and it fulfills like the promise of the title. And I think that was my main problem with it. If it had, you know, a more accurate title, then I might not have felt the same sort of uh, <laughs> disappointment. But uh, but yeah, yeah, it gets into some interesting stuff. So um, the author uses Nanaimo, BC to sort of frame the story. And mm-hmm. um, Nanaimo is a city that's on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And uh, it has the honor of having been called Canada's heroin capital in Mm -hmm. 1994 in a Washington Post article. Um, So at that time, uh, the city was definitely a resource-based economy, and a lot of people were out of work in fishing and logging and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Poverty was very high. I think it was 40-some percent. Um, Unemployment was high. Um, but the houses were cheap. Um, mm-hmm. And since then, unemployment has really declined. The mean income has risen. Um, there's a post-resource economy that's been established. But there is a much more, quote, visible and abject agony than there were mm-hmm. um, when those measures, such as unemployment and poverty, were objectively worse. Right. Um, so homelessness in Nanaimo grew 29% from 2018 to 2020, and it's continued to increase since then. Um, some other great news. Um, <laughs> this is another quote. Among children aged 10 to 18, overdose from opiates and other illicit drugs is the leading cause of death in the province. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the, the numbers are horrifying. Um, yeah, across Canada, an average of 20 people died um, of that cause every day last year. Um, in the United States, there were nearly 107,000 people dead in 2021, um, which yeah. was actually more than double the figure uh, for deaths due to guns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, a tough uh, one to talk about, I think. Um, I've lost people to overdose Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most people I know have also lost people to overdose. Um, and I think a lot of, there's a lot of like rage around how quick the COVID response from the government was compared yeah. to how slow and f- laden with excuses the response to the opiate, um, crisis has been, uh, in, in British Columbia. Right. I, I, I can't remember if this this statistic held through the whole pandemic but i remember like even at the height of the lockdowns and that the people number of people dying per day from overdoses was still higher than people dying every day from covid yeah um and i can't i can't remember if there were a few days where that uh, uh switched the the leader but um generally yeah it it's uh, been a, a bigger longer standing problem uh, yeah. than the pandemic with a, a, a much different response considering that COVID sort of got the whole the whole machine of government working on it uh, almost immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, that, that Patterson uh, bring, brings an interesting point into this. Um, here's a, a quote. A prevalent mm-hmm. narrative asserts that this, the tense, the despair, the not waking up is about undertreated mental illness Uh, wound around its cause and consequence addiction it's a comforting tale for the inner puritan but that narrative crumbles after the first questions why would disabling mental illness be so much more common now than in the 1990s 
why are so many more home people homeless now? Right. And we know mm-hmm. that the unemployment level is at near historic lows. Violent crime is down. Um, right. The economy is doing well. Like, so yeah. aren't like, why aren't, why, why is that problem still so persistent and actually getting worse? Right. Um, yeah. And, and goes, so I guess mm-hmm. the, the point in the, the headline, if more so than the article is, is uh, pointing the finger at the, the housing crisis. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, And I think it's so funny, right? Like when we talk about homelessness, we opine about childhood trauma and and violence and this Mm. and that. And, and those factors are absolutely important, you know, but we can lose sight of the fact that the literal problem that's being experienced by a homeless person is not having a home. Right. (laughs) That's it. That's the problem, right? Totally. Yeah. And, um, Hmm. and that's what I appreciate about this article, right? He talks about how homelessness, mental illness, and addiction are not the same thing that most homeless people do not have an addiction, that only Mm -hmm. one quarter of overdose deaths are homeless people. Right. Right. And he, he does say that the three can tend to cluster together, but we can't use them interchangeably. Right. And, and Mm. going back to Nanaimo, right. That house in the nineties that cost $60,000, is $700,000 today, which is 15 years of average pre-tax earnings. So that is why (laughs) there's more homeless people, right? Yeah, right. Um, And Liam, I wanted to bring you in here because Mm -hmm. one element of the housing crisis that doesn't get enough attention is just that Canada simply does not have enough housing and not anywhere near it. So can you tell us about that? Totally. I I think this is a statistic of mine. I mean, I didn't come up with it, but I told you it, and it clearly stuck with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's that um, of the G7 countries, uh, which are sort of the seven most developed economies in the world, uh, Canada has the lowest number of houses per capita. So mm-hmm. just straight up, uh, you know, number of houses compared to number of people, we are at the very bottom uh, for having enough houses for everyone. And uh, and I think we are also at the top of that list for uh, it, that figure you just mentioned the number of years you have to work to pay for the value of an average house uh i think we're at the top of it on that on that scale so uh yeah just generally uh if you you know look at it from thirty thousand feet canada just has too few houses for how many people live here um and that you know leads to supply and demand and houses being really really expensive Mm mm-hmm Yeah, absolutely. Like this article says that to restore housing affordability, Canada would need to build an additional 3.5 million homes by 2030. 3.5 million (laughs) homes in six years, right? Yeah. That's just not going to happen. No, Um, totally. I actually, uh, I read a a different article in The Economist uh, that was about Canada's housing market. And what did they call it? They called it like a, a, they need they were advocating for Canada to go on like a wartime footing with regards to housing supply. Speaking of uh, public works projects. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, it's, it's, um, I don't know. There, there has been like a fair, like a spattering of, of housing related policies in Canada over, I don't know, just the last couple of months. It seems like it's become top of mind, but, um, they all feel very like peripheral and mm-hmm. and small. <laughs> yeah, not, given not the at scope all of the problem. Sort of the wartime footing of, you know, we have to hire, you know, tens of thousands of people to build millions of homes. Uh, 
yeah, that's not happening and, and seems very unlikely to happen. Yeah, I think it should be treated as an emergency. Like the mm -hmm. homelessness really does seem to be increasing. Like invisibility too, right? Like I've just, I've seen yeah. tents like popping up all sorts of places like in the, the middle, like the meridians of highways. And mm -hmm. like it's it's quite alarming. Um, and um, I just like, I love how Patterson like directly ties the, the increase in housing prices to to homelessness, right? Because we have hmm. people working full-time minimum wage who are homeless, right? Working hmm. homeless people. Right. And the math just doesn't allow them to live in a home if they're working for minimum wage. Um, and yeah, there was a study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office in 2020 that says, hmm. um, that showed that every $100 increase in average rent increases homelessness by 9%. So like, the increases yeah. we've seen in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal and Halifax like are just astronomical. So it's not not surprising at all that we we have the levels of uh, of homelessness that we do. Right. Like. Yeah. And I, I liked uh, I was listening to uh, the True Non podcast. They did um, an interview with uh, the author William T. Volman. And mm. they were talking about how like in Los Angeles, like the housing affordability issue and the homelessness issue are treated as if they're separate, right? One is like, oh, middle-class right. people like not being able to get mortgages. And this is about, oh, mental health and addiction and blah, blah, blah. Um, mm. But literally the housing prices going up increase the number of people sleeping outside, period. Right. Right? Like there's, yeah, it's, totally. it's not even <laughs> like, I don't know, some sort of like, uh, indirect connection they are like they are right right directly, so directly correlated no no uh, mediating factors needed yeah exactly yeah. um so yeah next uh the author gets into talking about like the diseases of despair right um mm -hmm. we're seeing a rise in deaths from suicide alcoholic liver disease and drug overdose um huge numbers like in the u.s uh deaths of despair doubled from 2008 right. to 2019 um and what's kind of interesting is deaths of despair don't happen specifically among the poorest people but the most hopeless mm. right um hmm. so things like inequality and dispossession are correlated like an example being the uh, collapse of industrial uh work in the rust yeah. belt in the united states um, and another one is generational declines in well-being, right? People who can't like keep the standard yeah. um, for their families that their parents were able to provide. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think, yeah, that's the, the deaths of despair are really, really connected to uh, the opiate crisis. But that's kind of as close as this article gets to talking about the opiate crisis. Yeah. Um, so I think like I appreciated hmm. that, you know, the author talks about how the main cause of homelessness is a lack of a home, that most homeless people don't struggle with addiction and, you know, that deaths of despair are not exclusive to the homeless population. Mm -hmm. That's all really important stuff. But um, I don't know. I don't think he makes a strong case for the opiate crisis being rooted in the housing crisis, which is what the title says. Yeah. Um, especially because he says most overdose deaths are not among the homeless. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Back to the idea that like 
the title was just written by someone else uh, mm-hmm. trying to get clicks. It really feels that way because yeah. no, you're you're right. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, I mean I clicked on the article because I thought maybe that would be a, an interesting argument someone could make, and I guess I still think that. So if anyone wants to, they can. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we do have uh, some uh, news on that front. Um, right? The yeah, Supreme because Court case right now. Totally. I, I feel like this this article was sort of grasping at, you know, what, you know, what what is the narrative that explains uh, the opioid epidemic? Right. Is it is it homelessness? Is it, um, you know, the housing crisis? Is it uh, addiction or mental health? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think both you and I read a book that uh, laid out a pretty compelling narrative <laughs> for 100%. for what caused this crisis. Uh, if you want to get into that. <laughs> I sure do. Yeah, I've been <laughs> waiting to talk about this one. Um, yeah, the book is called Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also a documentary uh, that involves extensive interviews with that author called The Crime of the Century, uh, mm-hmm. which is HBO. And um, yeah, they both tell the story of the Sackler family that is the the owners of Purdue Pharma. And um, when we're talking about causes of the opiate epidemic, I have come to very strongly believe that this was a manufactured crisis uh, by a handful of pharmaceutical companies uh, and that Mm -hmm. Purdue Pharma led the way. Um, Yeah. Do you want to get into it, Liam? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I feel like I want to start with the caveat that I'm generally very leery of any sort of like um you know evil cabal caused this problem in the world i feel like most things that are wrong are explained by like uh, uh, trade-offs or you know bigger systemic problems mm-hmm. but this book i thought laid out a very uh very clear and well thought out uh a case against the, the sackler family um basically that they uh came up with an opioid painkiller and purposefully marketed it as not addictive mm-hmm. and uh and sold it very very hard sort of with you know big commissions for salespeople and big marketing campaigns and uh and and misinformation things that they knew were not true uh that they told uh people anyway and and managed to get by the fda which well yeah they basically colluded <laughs> with the fda right yeah mm-hmm. uh and yeah, and so they got a ton of people hooked on these painkillers that were addictive, and uh, yeah, and sort of by the time uh, regulations started catching up with them and lawsuits started coming in, there were just a tremendous number of people addicted to the substance. Yeah, uh, who sort of since since the prescriptions start stopped being written as commonly, uh, have largely switched to street drugs, mm-hmm. uh, which are. I mean, the, the over-the-counter drugs were also very dangerous, but the, the fentanyl in particular uh, on the street uh, is very, very dangerous and, and kills yeah. lots of people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, the Sacklers and Purdue, right from the beginning, um, were, yeah, concealing information that they had about the level of addictiveness. Yeah, and they, they were, like, straight up telling doctors that this was the first non-addictive opium or opiate uh, mm-hmm. in the history of the world uh, because of its slow-release function. Of course, you could crush it and snort it, and it would no longer be yep. sl- slow-release, and they knew that. 
Um, so they concealed that, you know, they put that it was non-addictive in the literature and they literally colluded with a member of the FDA to have it approved. Um, and so then all their salespeople could say, look at the label. It's right in the packaging. It says it's non-addictive. Yeah. There was no maximum dosage suggested. You could give people as much as they said that they needed. Mm -hmm. And there were all sorts of just horrible little details. Uh, one that stuck out to me was that, um, you know, they, they said that one pill would last 12 hours, right. but that pill in their own studies showed 10 hours of effectiveness. Right. I could be remembering the hours rock wrong but mm -hmm. the the point is that it would wear off much before you were allowed to take your next dose because so so what the the right. the pharmaceutical company said was that people who are taking these pills for legitimate pain conditions and who take them as directed by their doctor cannot become addicted only bad people who get the pills for the wrong right. reasons can become addicted but People who took them as prescribed were going into withdrawal every single dose because they didn't right, last yeah. as long as the packaging said. So, of course, they would go through their prescription faster than they than they were told they should. Right. Totally. And then if the doctor, I mean, I think a lot of doctors were just very happy to write more and more prescriptions. But any who tried not to sort of led their patient um, to find an alternative source. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I don't think there was ever any, <laughs> any like support for how to stop taking them. I don't think that was ever part of the uh, material presented to doctors or anything well, like that. Here's the I, thing: yeah. Purdue Pharma mm. came up with the concept of pseudo addiction, and what pseudo addiction oh, right. meant was that it was someone who had all the signs of being addicted, but they were a legitimate pain patient. And do you know what you were supposed to do if right. you saw a case of pseudo addiction? Mm. You were supposed to increase their dosage. That is what they told <laughs> doctors to do, and that's what many doctors did. Yeah. Terrible. It's crazy. It's literally it really a criminal is, yeah. conspiracy. Like it's, and the Sacklers had so many chances, right? Forks in the road where it's mm -hmm. like, okay, here's all these signs that this is going horribly wrong. What choice are you going to make? And over and over and over and over again, they made the choice that would cause more pain and more addiction. And they doubled yep. down on just the vitriol towards addicts that people were doing it to themselves. Right. And that legitimate patience, this would never happen to like, it's just, it's one of the most horrifying books that I've ever read. Yeah. Straight up. <laughs> recommend it though. I, anyone yeah, yeah. who's intrigued by this <laughs> little taster, uh, give it a read. Uh, Definitely give it a you. read. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so the, the story, I mean, ugh, it's, it's, um, horrifying front to back, but, uh, what's mm -hmm. happening right now is, um, that, uh, the Sackler family is, uh, has a decision that's being considered by the Supreme court. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And basically, um, what happened was like, there have been all sorts of lawsuits that have been filed against Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so Purdue Pharma basically declared bankruptcy. And mm -hmm. so um, there's uh, a $1.5 billion still within Purdue, and it's being turned into a nonprofit company um, whose earnings will help to pay for the addiction crisis, which is crazy when you think about it. They're selling more Oxycontin <laughs> to pay for addiction services. Um, but yeah, the the whole 
bankruptcy proceeding is really controversial because basically what mm -hmm. happened is Purdue Pharma, the company, pled to pled guilty to three uh, felonies, but the Sackler family pled guilty to nothing. And right. as part of the bankruptcy deal, it was like, okay, you're the the company will have these felonies, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> you know that there will be a fine that's paid, and part of the deal is that the Sackler family is protected from all civil litigation forever. <laughs> right. Um, and there's some interesting details, like for example, the Sackler family drained somewhere between 10 and 11 billion dollars out of the Purdue Pharma company when it mm -hmm. became clear that there was like the all this mounting litigation um right. so and I, I think yeah. part of the bankruptcy dealing was that they would that sort of that was the cutoff line the money they took out after it became clear they were uh going to go bankrupt due to legal action uh that's the money that they are paying out to settle the lawsuits but all of the money they made yeah. before that point um, with the, you know, if the, the current ruling stands will be inaccessible to any civil lawsuit. Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks exactly. Thanks to the, the decision by this bankruptcy court, which seems like a lot of power to put in the hands of a bankruptcy court. Exactly. And that's why it's made it to the Supreme Court, because the government was like, hang on a second. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you, you, the Sacklers like basically evade accountability. All of them evade um, jail time, of course, and none of them yep. have to plead guilty to a single crime, I don't think, in this deal. Um, and it sounds like, uh, you know, uh, various parents and relatives of uh, people who have overdosed have mixed feelings on this. Um, yeah, for some I people, think, mm -hmm. I, I I believe that the that this was sort of an option that was put to the plaintiffs and that it was voted, and the, that it won the vote. Sort of the the mm -hmm. majority of people uh, in the the class action lawsuits uh, said they liked the plan enough to vote for it. To uh, vote for the settlement. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But not all of them. But yeah, that's sort of how it, how it got through the bankruptcy court was. Um, Right. Uh, it was sort of approved. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I guess like some people are like, listen, the Sacklers are like one of the wealthiest families on the planet. And mm -hmm. so individual litigants have no chance. Like, you know, a mother <laughs> who yeah, is a totally. hairdresser in Virginia is never going to get a cent out of these people. But if we do this settlement, you know, those people will get money. But then yeah. on the other hand, some people are like, these people have evaded accountability for decades of this crisis, totally. you yeah. know, and we cannot let them off the hook now. Right. And, and that the money totally. is like not ever going to be able to like make up for what they've done to people. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, it's it's uh I mean, it's a it's a man-made disaster, isn't it? It sure is, you know, and I think like one of the most vile parts of this whole story is that like over and over again the company got away with paying a fine that seemed mm -hmm. big to us little people, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but this company, like, I think it was um, between 2006 and 2014, which is a nine-year period, a mm -hmm. hundred billion 
opiate pills had been shipped to pharmacies across the United States. Hundred billion with a B. Yeah. So like the <laughs> amount, you know, you could you yeah, could find these people number. like nine hundred million dollars and that's <laughs> doesn't mean anything to them. <laughs> like yeah. so basically over and over again they're like, Oh, like doing the like economic calculus. They're like, sure, we'll pay the fine and we're going to keep doing it. Oh, pay another fine, keep doing it. Pay another fine, keep doing it. Oh, and no. it just felt like over and over and over again, there was no mechanism to get these people to stop. So I think yeah. that's like, we have to make sure that it this cannot ever happen again, right? And I think totally. that's a question, like, I don't know exactly what legally needs to happen to discourage companies from acting in such a horrific manner, but that that's what we need. Yeah, so I think that's sort of the argument for um, leaving them open to civil liability is that, um, right, it, do, it does seem like a very evil family, but you got to try and solve these problems in systemic ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how do you convince uh, other potential evil families from not being so evil? <laughs> uh, probably uh, either putting them in jail or mm -hmm. making them broke uh, yeah. would be a strong, a strong disincentive to do such evil things. Uh, and I think, you know, that's an argument people have for the $6 billion payment not nearly being enough that, you know, is it just another, uh, small enough fine on the, uh, on the path to tremendous wealth? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if all the Sacklers get to walk free and they continue to be billionaires just with fewer billions than before, <laughs> then I think that we've failed to discourage this sort of behavior. So totally. Yeah. The next time, next time a family has an opportunity to do the same, they, they might well, mm -hmm. uh, cause it, yeah, didn't turn out too bad <laughs> for, <laughs> for the incredibly rich people. Yeah. Could have been worse. Uh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Highly recommend, yeah. uh, Patrick Radden Keith's, uh, Keith's book on an empire of pain. If you just totally. want to be really <laughs> excruciatingly angry about this, read the book. <laughs> totally. Uh, I recommend it as well. Uh, now we got to transition somehow into my quiz. <laughs> Dun -dun -dun. Uh, a bit, a bit more lighthearted, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it gets back to housing, uh, a topic we often talk about. Um, and today's quiz is about uh, Canada's housing market in particular. Uh, uh, just a, a cool statistic I, I saw that I, I think I would have gotten wrong if I had guessed it beforehand. Hmm. Um, so the idea is we're dividing Canada's housing market into three types. Rentals, owners with mortgages, and outright owners. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how much of the market is made up of each of these types? Oh my goodness. Okay. So we've got our housing units either rented, owned outright, or owned with a mortgage, uh, and a rough percent or however you want to do it for those three categories. All right. I'm going to take a stab at it. I'm going to say 50% rentals, 30% mortgage, and 20% owned outright. Okay. Uh, the correct answer is 31% rented, 39% okay. mortgage, and 29% outright. Wow, there are fewer renters than I thought. Yeah, and more outright owners than I thought. I always right. picture homeowners as having mortgages, but uh, yeah, it's roughly it's roughly thirty, thirty, forty, uh, where the forty is the mortgage owners. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and I I thought uh, uh, just a bit more information. Uh, if you divide it into, uh, if you divide Canadians into uh, income quintiles. 
Mm-hmm. So like the lowest 20%, the second lowest 20%, the middle 20%, etc. Um, the lowest quintile is the only one where the majority are renters. Hmm. Um, so even people in like the 20 to 40% bottom uh, are more likely to own their home than rent it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's like not the <laughs> impression that one would probably get from uh, from the way that the, the housing crisis is being talked about. Totally. Which yeah, I think, I, yeah, it doesn't mean there's no housing crisis. Um, but yeah, it complicates oh. and <laughs> lends some perspective on it's, sort of who's experiencing it. And yeah. Totally. Well, and and the, <laughs> the, the thing that sort of scares me about it is that 30% who own outright have uh, no incentive to bring housing prices down and huge yeah. incentive to uh, increase it. Uh, yeah, and they're and, the ones paying politicians. <laughs> <laughs> and and the mortgage people generally have that same incentive, but uh, a bit less so. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I also brought the numbers uh, for the OECD, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a collection of about 30-something uh, countries, sort of the most developed uh, on in the world. Uh, just, you know, for some comparison, I thought the OECD instead of comparing to the states this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and across sort of the whole rich world, uh, 17% rent on the private market, hmm. 23% own with a mortgage, 48% own outright, and uh, 12% have a different housing setup, uh, right. which is uh, a lot of uh, like public uh, housing, which Canada mm-hmm. has essentially none of, <laughs> but uh, other countries have uh, large subsidized rent uh, chunks of their uh, housing market. Right. So we do have more renters than like the average of the OECD countries. The other thing that I was like not sure of is um, that triple system or like Mm -hmm. dividing things into those three categories doesn't represent companies that own large swaths of real estate, Um, which I know we do have, right? That not everyone is just, I'm a person who lives in this house and I own it, right? So I'm not sure where those... I think those would fall into the rental category, assuming that they are being rented. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because, right. Yeah. It's sort of it's the sort rented of on the private who's, market. Who's inhabiting them? Is that what? Yes. Yeah. If okay, a house okay. is owned outright but rented, it would count as being rented and not as being owned outright. Gotcha. 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 Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So those would fall into that category. Yeah. Because I'm okay. curious what, like, how big that problem is in Canada. Um, and I know like certain parts of the United States, it's wild. You've got like Mm -hmm. some company come in and just like buy up a town. Like, yeah, totally. uh, There's one, one sort of funny fact I came across or or interesting. I don't know (laughs) that I was like, I got to tell, cure this, um, that uh, in the OECD, the 48% own outright struck me as high. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I, I found a note that said part of the reason that number is so high is that all of the former Soviet union countries that are Mm -hmm. part of the oecd um uh when the soviet union collapsed all those houses were sold to the people who lived in them uh for sort of pennies on the dollar wow Uh, so there are countries like romania i believe was the one with the highest own outright rate and it's like in the 90s wow uh, because i guess the population hasn't grown much since then and uh yeah at the end of the, the fall of uh communism Mm-hmm. Uh, there are enough houses for everyone and everyone just got them. 
That's so interesting too, because I think Romania is like struggling on a lot of other metrics, right? So yeah. it's like, yeah, you can't use home ownership as like a shorthand <laughs> for like how people are doing. Totally. Better. Yeah. It, yeah it's, it's, it's a country where, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have to think they'd have, uh, fewer outright owners if, uh, more people were like trying to move there. Right. Right. right but I think yeah. the population is sort of stagnant because, uh, there are other sort of unappealing things about it uh, beyond the very cheap housing. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah, so that's that's the quiz. Yeah, statistics 30, 31% coming renters. in, <laughs> <laughs> coming in to surprise you. <laughs> very cool. cool. Uh, we had one note we wanted to to end on. Yeah, if anyone's yeah. listened this long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for still being here. Um, yeah, our next episode will be the last one of the year. So we're going to break away mm-hmm. from our usual format a bit for a holiday special. Um, maybe get a little more personal or, um, yeah, talk about uh, what we've read and watched this year. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, totally. Um, still planning it. <laughs> still planning it. Uh, yeah. So part of that is uh, we want to invite you to uh, ask us questions. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you can submit your questions to hottakethinktank at gmail.com. Yeah, or um, uh, I think we'll be checking the comments on YouTube and Substack if you want to leave questions there for us. Yeah, exactly. We're curious, uh, yeah, what you'd like us to talk about. Um, yeah, so you can do that in a couple different ways. Yeah, cool. Look forward to reading your questions. Well, this has been Hot Take Think Tank. Until next time. Mm-hmm.